0: So twice a day, at least one of those cardio, one of those 20 minutes needs to be letting your dog move his body at a pace that he sets. So sometimes we have to hire dog walkers. I mean, we need to find a way to be creative, to let our dogs maintain their muscle mass, cardiovascular well-being, tendon, ligament health. And then as a reward, their cool-down period gets to be A snifari where they get to stop and smell. They get to investigate their environment. They get a say in whether they go left and right. So there is really two forms of exercise. There's this physical exercise that needs to happen on a daily, consistent basis, much beyond a walk. And then there's mental exercise. And that's the piece that I think a lot of people also forget is that the brain component of keeping a dog mentally engaged is a really important thing, especially as they age.
1: I'm Doug Bobst Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes. And today's guests are Dr. Karen Becker and Rodney Habib. Dr. Becker is the most followed veterinarian on social media, and her deliberate and common sense approach to creating vibrant health for companion animals has been embraced by millions of pet lovers around the world. Dr. Becker also writes and lectures extensively and serves as a wellness consultant for a variety of health oriented organizations. Rodney Habib is one of the most influential pet health thought leaders in the world. He's a filmmaker. He's a multiple award-winning content creator and founder of Planet Paws, the world's largest pet health page on Facebook. His first TEDx talk on pet health stands as the highest viewed TED talk in history pertaining to dogs. Together, they have penned a new book called The Forever Dog, which is an absolute masterclass, start to finish on how to maximize the health, longevity, and quality of life of your dog. In this episode, we cover it all and you will be prepared after listening to take the steps needed to help your dog live longer. Some of the things that we talked about that I think you're really going to appreciate are the four factors you must pay attention to in order for your dog to live longer. We get into simple adjustments you can make right now to improve the health of your dog. We chat about the most overlooked area of a dog's health that will impact its lifespan. We also get into the topic of pet toys and we discuss which toys are dangerous and which ones are recommended. Our discussion also gets into why your dog's diet is so important and how to feed it for optimal health. Uh, We get into how much daily exercise is actually enough and the common themes of the dogs that live the longest and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Karen Becker and Rodney Habib to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Dr. Becker and Rodney, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hey, thanks. Doug, thanks so much for having us. We're excited to be here, man. Uh, Yeah.
1: I'm excited to talk to both of you because you're talking about, you know, arguably one of the most popular topics in the world, like forever is is dogs. And I don't know too many people who don't like dogs. So I think that people who are listening to this, whether they have a dog or not, they're going to get a lot out of our conversation because we're not just talking about like how to own a dog or even the health of a dog. We're talking more or less like how to make sure your dog lives as long as possible. But I guess to to, to preface our conversation, like before we get into the weeds, like how did you two come together to do this? Because I know like Karen, I know you're a veterinarian and Rodney, I know you're essentially like Planet Paws, you know, blogger for, for pets and you've kind of created a massive platform through that. So what made you two come together and collaborate for this book?
0: Well, about six years ago, Rodney's dog got cancer. And he reached out to me as a veterinarian, and he said, listen, this is not a good diagnosis, I know, and I've already removed it once, and it came back immediately, and have you heard about this thing called a ketogenic diet? And I heard about this diet that could potentially influence my dog, and that is how we initially met, is over the ketogenic diet for dogs. And then out of that, we started hearing about the oldest dogs around the world, like You know, 21, 25, 27, 29, 30. And Rodney's obsessed with longevity. And I'm obsessed with the science of how and why things, I I really like physiology. So, in his obsession with the longest dogs around the world, we went to the top scientists, geneticists, researchers. And some of them were studying the DNA of these old dogs. And we were able to kind of backtrack how and why, what these owners did and didn't do. And that, that has brought us together over the last three years to kind of create this book.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I think longevity is a hot topic right now, and Mm -hmm. we, we were talking before we hit the record button, and I was saying that I was, you know, impressed with you know some of the experts that you reached out to and gathered information from in your book because I think it's important. And we live in this world where we're in a very reactive, like healthcare approach to things, right? Where people are only going to the doctor when something's wrong, or we're taking, you know, some form of medication to you know, numb a problem that is more long-term and we could be more proactive about it. Not that I'm, I'm not against medication, but I guess in my opinion and, and what I believe like would really work long-term is taking a more proactive approach. So I know that's what you guys talk a lot about in your book. So I really want to get into it because you just mentioned that you've studied dogs that live to be, you know, substantially old, like in their twenties is like unheard of. You know, the, the, most I've heard it is like into the late teens and stuff for some dogs and they're like hobbling around at that point. They're not really like healthy. So let's just say that I'm a, I'm a new pet owner and I'm going to get a dog and I come to you guys and I'm like, listen, I want my dog to, to live forever. And I, I mean, as, as long as possible, but not just that, I want it to function well during that time too. Like what are the main principles that should go into that?
2: I mean that's such an awesome question, man. I mean, those are the conversations that we typically have all the time. And like, literally, that will go on for like hours and hours and hours, right? Because I mean, of course, if you could sum it up in just a few sentences, it'd be so easy. But when we were breaking this uh, book down, Doug, one of the big things was, how are we going to categorize this? And I know that Dr. Becker brilliantly, I'd love to take the credit for it, broke it up into the main sections that we even know what's going on in human health and in human nutrition. So we tagline to dogs, right? And basically focusing, you know, the D that stands for diet, O optimal exercise, G genetics, and S for stress, which is massive in my opinion. I know we focus a lot on nutrition as we should, right? But you can't, there's no way to supplement yourself out of a bad diet. And there's no way to, to bring on the best diet in the world to relieve all of the stress that could potentially could be going on in the household. So when we took some of these factors and broke these factors down, we really analyzed in each category what it would take to create like the longest lived dog in the world, that was the initial strategy and man, the hardest part of it will probably write in the book.
0: Yeah, I I would agree with you. But when I think what both of us came to the same conclusion, I think depending on what your interest lies and where you have maybe the heartbreak that you have gone through previously, if you've had a dog that have had, you know, that's Died of cancer or has been in heart failure or kidney failure or liver failure or autoimmune disease or raging allergies their whole life, you have a soft spot for something that your animal's going through. And that tends to kind of keep us laser focused with the heartbreak or the history that we have. But when we interviewed these top longevity experts, they were very clear that there are a bunch of different lifestyle variables and then genetics, which we can talk about a little bit later, and then genetic predispositions which all play into either intentionally creating health or unintentionally allowing your dog's body to degenerate quietly and cellularly midlife. When the, the dogs will hop around and there isn't any arthritis that you can see and everything looks to be okay, that is when the scientist said it's time to start addressing the issues. But those issues are so big and massive that one of the reasons we wrote the book is to try and pare it down. For every dog owner, regardless of where they're at in their evolution or their knowledge base, whether they're a first-time dog owner or a veteran dog owner, we tried to summarize all that together in a really easy strategy that allows owners to take on all of those factors, not one or two, but to actually have this multimodal approach to intentionally create longevity. But It it was a task.
2: Yeah. And to hit the initial question is like, okay, I got a puppy. What do I do? Here's, here lies the biggest challenge, right? Because some people, a lot of people, of course, you go to a shelter. So you don't know at what age you're getting your dog. So when we turned around and we said we had to write this book, not everybody has the luxuries of starting from right from day one, right? What happens when you adopt a eight-year-old or a 10-year-old yeah. or a geriatric dog? Are there are there ways to start? If I sat down and like the first thing that somebody would address to me is, I, I just got a puppy. What do I do? Holy smokes, man, nutrition. What you put in that puppy's mouth right from the start plays such a critical impact on the gut bio and the, and like the rest of that puppy's life, Doug. I mean, we have studies I and mean, we traveled to Finland with like brilliant scientists, Dr. Anna Helmburgen. bjorgman They can show you right from the start. You start implementing the right category of nutrition in that puppy you can reduce the likelihood of not only just like diseases and cancer and so on and so forth, but they've got studies that go into like allergies, which is the number one thing that's plaguing dogs today. You can reduce things like allergies just from day one with that puppy by at least 50% by making the right choices and just nutrition. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So let's dive into that. Let's like double click into nutrition because that's clearly like a big topic now. And there's a lot of there's a lot of like rhetoric around, okay, like is just dog food in itself. Just enough, like just getting the basics or do you spend a bunch of money and get organic freeze dried, like raw food. And some people will say, no, that's a waste of money and that's a fad. But I think like when I first got my dog, I don't know the exact percentage. And, and Karen, you might know this obviously better than me of the percentage of, of DNA and genes that humans share with dogs. I think it's relatively high.
0: It right. is. It is. It's. It's over eighty yeah. percent. Right. Which is why you know we used to use kind of mice and we still do use mice and rats for translational models. But a lot of these scientists are using dogs for lifestyle diseases as as models for humans, which is helpful for us <laughs> when writing the book. Yeah.
1: Right. So I remember when I got Shadow, I was like, I want to feed him like I would me for the most part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think it can't. I, I think I guess in my experience, maybe talking to some people, it can't just be that so what are the what are some of the like non-negotiables when it comes to pet food because i I feel like the pet food industry is very similar to the human food industry in that Mm -hmm. like the traditional like big brands where they're just throwing in a bunch of ingredients just putting it in a bag and calling it dog food is probably not ideal for dogs so like in your opinion like where
2: should people spend their money let me let me just jump yeah. into the comparison and you can jump into the food so I just want to touch on what you said you're you're you I mean you hit the nail on the head of course it's the large a lot of them are the chocolate bar industries that have like and run the most popular brands of pet food on the market in fact Mars Inc who makes delicious chocolate bars of course not so good for you but maybe once in a blue moon and then Nestle who is the other largest producer of dog food those two pretty well, if I had to guess, it would own at least 60% of the market. And wow. then you've got the, you've got companies like Colgate, Palmolive that own a lot of the brands as well. These companies don't just own what's happening in grocery stores, but they also own what's happening in vet clinics as well. So those prescription diets that you're buying from vet clinics, it's the exact same companies. It's gotten so far, dug to the point now that these massive companies also are buying up the clinics all in America. So now they own the clinics, they own the foods. They're getting into the labs. It's a it's, it's a giant conglomerate wheel, so it's really difficult to get information when you're trying to get information. But to go to the basics, this is where you can most likely. So
0: when you think so, Rodney's right. You know, eighty percent of pet food companies are owned by by five companies, and so and they're producing basically all the same products. They're producing ultra processed pet food that shelf stable and super convenient and the upper kind of medical lines are sold at the veterinarian and the lower lines are sold at the grocery store and everything in between, but they have the entire market of ultra processed pet food covered. So you pose a great question. What is the best food for your dog? and two things we have to factor in first of all every species has what we refer to as biologically appropriate food or you know what is a dog supposed to eat and what i will tell you from a veterinary standpoint is dogs don't have a carbohydrate required they you know they don't need a lot of carbs in their diet it's okay to feed some but they don't need them physiologically for survival so without a carb requirement when we look at what dogs evolutionarily ate you know they have a higher protein moderate healthy fat and then a very low carb requirement. So that's that's what we would wanna emulate when we think about nourishing a dog for low metabolic stress. What we can put in their bodies that doesn't create problems. But when we look at those requirements for macronutrients, and then we look at what is currently on the market, the average bag of dog food is 40, 50, 60% carbs, which breaks it into starch and then sugar, of course. The bigger issue, I think, is that these top companies producing scientifically formulated dog food the only option is ultra-processed food. And so veterinarians remain the last category of people saying only feed highly processed, refined food to your animal from birth to death. And I think people like you and millions of other people around the world are saying, you know, I'm going to stop and rethink this because I understand that we were told I was just should feed dog food from birth to death. But I'm not doing that with my own self. I'm not doing that with my kids. I am including more things in the diet than just little brown crunchy balls. And therein lies this kind of massive movement to an awakening that there's a very good chance that dogs need a whole lot more than little brown crunchy balls. So we talk about that in the book.
2: And there's some pretty cool studies to validate it as well. Now. Like there's there's universities that have come out, one of the most famous studies that came out of the way at Purdue, they wanted to find out, well, just how critical is putting something fresh, let's say from your refrigerator, into a bowl of dried pellets. Like what kind of effect could that possibly have? They did this incredible study on Scottish terriers who are prone to bladder cancer, Doug. And what they found was that if you just went to your refrigerator and you just pulled out some, let's say, green leafy vegetables, kale, broccoli, bok choy, Brussels sprouts. In fact, if you even pulled out any vegetable, according to the study, and you added it three times a week to a bowl of dry pellets, the researchers found not only did it reduce the probability of dogs developing bladder cancer, but it was so vast, 90% reduction of the chances of developing bladder cancer if you were just to add something green leafy from your refrigerator. I mean, that's how much impact it is to put something fresh in the bowl.
0: So what's interesting, in my opinion, is that the in North America and in, in Canada, US, about 50% of humans get their calories from ultra processed food today. So we are eating some, you know, packaged food, no big deal. For dogs, the average dog is consuming at least 85% highly refined food their whole life. So dogs actually have a higher intake of, I'm not going to say junk food, but fast food. Dogs eat fast food their whole life. Right. So when people start thinking about, okay, so should I include some fresh foods? So this is where, because veterinarians aren't taught about how to feed fresh foods, veterinarians aren't taught how to make nutritionally complete foods at home. Veterinarians aren't taught anything in vet school, really, about nutrition, other than what prescription foods to feed. Veterinarians don't know how to formulate homemade diets. We just, our nutrition knowledge is not so amazing, much like human medical doctors. You know, they don't graduate with this unbelievable wealth of knowledge. So this question about what do I feed my dog becomes super confusing. What we do know is the research is undeniable. The more diversity we give our dogs, the healthier their gut microbiome, the least amount of heat, processing the foods go through over and over the more nutrition's in the food it's all kind of common sense and yet it's posing quite a whirlwind confusion within marketplace but also within veterinary medicine because there's a lot of people saying i think i want to do something else besides ultra processed foods and veterinarians aren't necessarily there to coach people through dietary changes yeah
1: so so with all that said i i i want to go into it a little bit further because obviously like specificity and depending on the breed of the dog, things will obviously vary, but you know, you think about like the human plate and the optimal diet for humans is, you know, a mix of obviously fruits and vegetables, healthy fats, complex carbs, you know, good sources of protein, legumes and so on and so forth. Like, what about like the dog? Like, should the, are you saying like no dry food? Are you saying, okay, get, You know, half dry food, but just making sure it's one of these brands doesn't have these ingredients. Like what what would that like if you could make a plate with the dogs like daily food for the day? Like what would that look like in a universal way?
2: What an awesome and loaded question. I mean, listen for all of time, humans are going to fight over the most That's ideal true. plane. I mean, you know, we've sat with yeah. people. Like you- I mean, I've I've had these debates, like Dom D'Agostino, was talking about the ketogenic yeah, diet, yeah. or Dave Asprey talking yeah. about the balance of fats. What he feeds his dog. We've spoken to so many cool like longevity hackers, and hey, what are you doing for your dog? This debate will probably be there for oh. all of time. But like you just like you just said, we know the basics are there, right? In the human world, put as much fresh food in your mouth and keep as much processed food in your mouth. And that would be sort of the same thing for a pet. I know with us, and speaking on my behalf, when it comes to my dogs, the optimal fuel seems to be, of course, for animals would be fat. And I know there's a lot of debate in the human world when it comes to that as well, right? You know, when you're mixing fat, and you're mixing carbohydrates, you can get some wonky things. In the pet space, Doug, it's be- because everything is refined, And all the the vegetable oils that are put in these foods are refined. You get some pretty wonky things when you're trying to do a comparison model between a bowl of processed food and a bowl of fresh food when you're looking at macronutrients, right? They just, they don't play very well in both aspects. So for me in in the fresh food realm, I'm focusing on good, clean fats. If I have a healthy adult dog, let's put puppies to the side for a sec because puppies have a higher requirement for protein. I'm looking for things with good, clean animal fats. I'm making sure that I'm sourcing good, clean animal fats. My veg content that's there, I'm probably hovering around like 20%. I'm using some awesome vegetables. We've got a ton of science of some of the benefits of specific vegetables and why I'm using the vegetables that I am in my bowl. And then, of course, I'm looking for some good, clean meats. Balancing is important. Let me just say that. Balancing is important. It's not that we hate pet food or we think that all pet foods are, are terrible or anything of that matter. There's incredible companies out there that are making some really good foods, Doug. It's the processing techniques. How much heat am I applying to that food that I've destroyed all of those micronutrients and done damage to those macronutrients? And then I got to turn around and put a synthetic bag of vitamin mix to make it balanced again. That's where the whole problem lies. Mm -hmm. If you had a bowl, two comparative bowls, and one is all whole food nutrition and balanced, and one is processed food and balanced, it's logic. People are going to go towards the whole food. But it's just it's not as easy as one thinks when you're trying to balance.
0: Yeah. So what I would encourage listeners to think about is first of all, where are the calories coming from? Are, you know, are they coming from carbs or are they coming from fat and protein? Because it would be, it would be better for your dog's metabolic machinery to get their calories from unrefined or at least low temp. You know, if you're going to cook it, just cook it once at a lower temperature, we don't have to cook foods over and over and over again for, for dogs because it just decreases the nutrient value. So if, so, ultra-processed foods like kibble that has been extruded has less innate nutrition than let's say a freeze-dried food. Or uh, if you take raw meats and then gently cook them once, that food, that bowl of food is going to have more nutrition in it. But Rodney's right. Dogs and puppies have this set of vitamins, minerals, and and calcium that's necessary on a consistent basis to make sure that you're meeting their bare minimum nutrient requirements. So it is important that if you decide to do, let's say a homemade diet, that you follow a recipe that you know that you're meeting minimum nutritional requirements. If you say, I'm too busy for this, but it makes total sense that my dog needs more. The cool thing about this revolution of people waking up to dogs needing more nutrition than ultra processed foods their whole life, There are dozens of human-grade pet food companies popping up all over, literally like once a week, there's a brand new amazing company that's releasing biologically appropriate human-grade raw, gently cooked, freeze-dried, dehydrated foods that are substantially healthier. When I say healthier, they have better nutrition because they've been minimally processed and they're using better quality raw ingredients. So that's that's kind of where the industry is headed because of pressure from consumers. Dog owners are like, listen, I'm not gonna feed this anymore. My dog has chronic GI issues, chronic allergies. He's fat, he's overweight, he's farty, his hair coat's miserable, he's itching all the time. I can't stand it. Something's wrong with the food. And owners are right. They just had it. And so they are turning to better quality, more species appropriate foods that have been less processed as a viable alternative. And there's all these amazing companies stepping up to the plate. It's pretty great. it's It's an exciting time to look for new pet food.
1: <laughs> what's interesting is we people and in, in many cases don't feed their dogs like Whole Foods unless they're sick. because what's the old? remedy for an upset stomach yeah. is like the chicken and rice diet for dogs. Right.
2: And then it works. Right. And then and it then works. We stop we and go back to processed food. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I'm guessing that most people listening to this, maybe they're not at the place just because maybe they're busy with families where they're like, yeah. man, I can barely cook for my family. Like, How am I going to now cook for my dog? So if you could provide like maybe a brand or two or a resource where if somebody says, okay, like maybe I want to start to take that step towards a more whole food, natural diet for my dog, like what's one that you found to be effective and cost efficient as well?
0: Well, my favorite thing to do, honestly, because everyone's economic status, time, everything is at a different place and dogs have different needs. Dogs that do have GI issues or dogs that have dogs that are underweight or overweight, they all have different needs. My favorite go-to research are these small independent boutiques, micro-independent boutiques all around the country that have wildly passionate people running them that are able to offer really focused advice about a dog specific medical needs so if you if you're hearing this and you have a dog that's like listen i don't like the food that he's on i'm seeing recurrent problems i want to try something else if you can align yourself with not a big box pet store but the small pet stores in your town or area that can provide not just better brands but the information needed behind how much do i need to feed and what's the best category of foods I could be within my budget and how much freezer space do you have or how, you know, how big is, how big of a dog do I have? Small independent retailers offer a whole variety of brands that people have never heard of. And so there's no such thing as one perfect food for every dog. It's about matching the food that you can, the best food you can afford for the dog that's in your house and what's going on in his body with the foods that are available. At your local retailer. And if you take advantage of your local independent retailers, you will have far more information, far more brands, and you will have far more opportunities to try different foods that resonate with your dog versus feeding a food that's creating problems and not knowing what to do. But, but
2: let me say this. So let's say that if we were just to say, let's say we had the Acme company, the famous Bugs Bunny, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah, Acme yeah, yeah, yeah. Some bit right? generic dog food. Okay. So let's say that I went in there and there's company A and they had five different type of processing techniques of food this is probably the easiest way to think of this if i like a company and i think and i like the brands that they make the first question i'm asking is in that brand category line which of your products have the least amount of heat that are blasted and which have the most amount of whole food vitamins and minerals in it. So typically, if you're going to look down at the bottom of the barrel, you're going to look at that package of food, those brown pellets, kibble, that can sit on the shelf for two years and require no refrigeration. All right, so first and foremost, there's your first warning sign. But as you slowly start to go up with food with moisture content and- the next thing you're going to do is go to canned food, right? Typically, people will start looking around for canned food. Your pets love canned food and so on and so forth, but it's so bloody expensive, right? It's really hard to feed. But because of the moisture content, in my personal opinion, in that canned food, sometimes canned food will be way better than dry food. As you slowly start to go up the scale, Doug, the next category then usually kicks in. There's many little tiny ones in there, but you go up to dehydrated. From dehydrated, you'll go up to like a freeze dried. Usually, freeze dried. Is like the upper echelon of food when you're going in. You're going in there like a baller when you're asking for freeze dried, right? It's gonna be expensive, but a lot of the whole food nutrition, if you go in the same brands, you flip around their bag of kibble and you flip around their bag of freeze dried, you'll notice those ingredient labels. The ingredients may be the same, but less synthetic vitamins. Then when you walk over to the freezer section, now you're rolling because you know those refrigerated products don't need all of those additives to sit on that shelf for like two years and not rot, but they need a refrigeration or, or a freezing, freezing process. Or freezer. That's yeah. how you know you've hit the upper echelon. When we traveled the globe, we sat and interviewed the owners with 30-year-old dog named Maggie, 27-year-old dog named Bushki from Hungary, 25-year-old dog named Bramble, 21-year-old dog named Doxy, all those dogs that lived way up there, all of them, all across the board, were eating either from the table or these owners were hand making the foods, or they were buying the upper echelon category of products. But we have yet to run into any of those dogs that lived that long. that were just eating the ultra processed food diet.
0: That's true. However, one of your very first questions was this you know, how much, if you're gonna feed kibble, can you feed some kibble? What we have found is, that a lot of these dogs ate some processed food Yeah. that, you know, every now and then people be like, here, here's some kibble. No problem. Just like you and I, you know, binge, everyone binges now and then and eats, falls off the wagon and eats a bunch of deep fried comfort food. We just don't do it every day, all day. So if I think the, the take home message is if you're going to do a base of of highly processed food for your dog, you need to open up that fridge or when you're making a salad and chopping off the bottom and the top of the carrots, yes. give it to your dog. Yeah. When you're trimming meats and when you are, you know, cutting green beans and, and snapping off the ends, give those to your dog. When you see the dented blueberry or the soft spot in the apple, give that to your dog. The more ultra processed food you're buying for the dog, the more treats you need to give from your refrigerator. If you're feeding an all-raw, organic, free-range, ethically-sourced raw diet, then those nutrients are already in there. So you having to open the fridge every day and add two is a whole lot less because your dog's foundational nutrition nutrition is whole food by default from the choice of food category that you're offering.
1: Yeah, I think you provided such a, a great palette of information for people just to be able to get started. And if they want to be able to make that transition up that ladder like if there's somebody who's now feeding their dog a highly processed diet they can upgrade to seeing which you know brands of food haven't been exposed to as much heat and then going into dehydrated and freeze-dried and then going into the the freezer section refrigerated section to to get their food and i want to get into something else you touched on that i think probably gets overlooked sometimes and that's stress on on dogs because we know how much Stress impacts us as humans but we forget that dogs can experience stress too and if you're you know living in a stressful environment in your home and you have a dog like chances are that dog's going to be stressed as well and i know exercise plays into stress too so i think you know we could probably tackle these both at once so let's talk about like stress on dogs and some things that you know in your research have improved to reduce their stress load and the role that exercise plays into this We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to my friends at Organifi. Let's face it, doing what you can to strengthen your health and immune system is so important right now. This is why I have been taking the immunity blend from Organifi. I also want to say that you cannot supplement your way into immunity or wellness, so make sure that you're taking care of the other areas of your health too. With that said, so many of you are buying immune support supplements and most of them are honestly garbage. It's important to focus on quality. Organifi's immunity is hundred percent organic and contains clinically researched beta glucans as well as 500% of your vitamin C intake and a healthy amount of ginger, turmeric, and zinc. This combination will certainly help to provide antiviral antibacterial and antifungal support and aid in immune function. I find it to be quite delicious and I've passed it along to some of my clients. And because it's made with real oranges, make sure to shake it up well so that it blends smoothly. To check it out and learn more about the amazing benefits of immunity from Organifi, go to www.organify.com forward slash Doug for 20% off your Organifi order. That's www.organifi.com forward slash Doug for 20% off. Now back to the show.
0: So, first of all, that term stress, we it encompasses a lot. So, right. there is what we call you know, if there's physical stress, which is if your dog blows his ACL or blows a disc or is overweight or has arthritis, there's physical stressors, which of course need to be addressed. There are emotional stressors, which we'll talk about in a minute, and then there are environmental stressors. And those environmental stressors are both inside the home. So, if you're you know, if you're drinking polluted tap water, if you, if the dog's living with a smoker, if there's a whole bunch of sprays being used in the house where the dogs are inhaling chemicals, if you're treating inside your home for ants and cockroaches or pesticide use in the home, outside we have lawn chemical use which is a massive threat because dogs are fuzzy and they get a load of the ground and they're basically little sponges. They're not showering every day so dogs are collecting a lot of environmental chemicals. So there's inside chemicals, outside chemicals and then there's veterinary chemicals. Veterinarians prescribe pesticides intentionally for heartworm, fleas, and ticks. And so we're applying those chemicals, which are oftentimes very, very necessary, but we have to factor that in in terms of physiologic liver stress and what what it does to the body. So when you think about all the ways that dogs are stressed, it's no wonder that they're under it. They have a lot going on that a lot of times as owners we're not thinking about. I think the thing that was most impactful for you, though, was the emotional stress that dogs take on from humans. I think that that absolutely.
2: I mean, all those types of stress are so important, Doug. And when you break them all down, literally like your jaw will hit the ground. Emotional stress for me was a really big deal. We traveled to Italy where we saw, sat with Dr. Biagio Daniello and their team just to see how much, you know, we, if you're just like a, A shitty human or you're just somebody who's super stressed out all the time how much effect could that play on your dog right because we all love our dogs but if you're not really balanced or if you're not mentally stable could that affect your dog these researchers found that within actually three seconds so like if you come in super stressed out or you become super stressed out and your dog smells those chemo signals that are being released from your sweat In three seconds, your dog will start blowing glycogen out from their liver. Their cortisol levels start to jack up. They will mimic your emotion within seconds, right? So if you're happy, your dog is running high. If you're feeling down, it's also going to bring you down. Here's the kicker, Doug. If you got into it with somebody early in the morning and you've released those chemo signals all over your skin and you come home, I don't know if you've noticed, but Shadow probably comes running up to you, smells you from top to bottom, analyzes your entire day. A lot of people are like, oh, he must smell another dog on I me. Mean, yes, that absolutely happens as well. But your also dog is scanning how your day went. And they can believe it or not, they can you can actually impact them, even though if you're over it and you come home feeling in a better mood, they can actually smell you and within seconds adapt to that. And the last thing that really messed me up was Dr. Lena Roth in Sweden is able to show, those researchers are able to show today, your dog will link up to your cortisol levels. They will synchronize to your cortisol levels. So if you are high strung and and wound up, I mean, we we know it just by walking in the dog park, you can take a look at a dog and you can be like, wow, that guy's owner is probably pretty strong. That dog will sync up to that owner. Yeah.
1: So is there some signs we should look for to see to know if our dog is stressed? (laughs) Is it I mean, typically it's like with a dog's like, you know, experiencing distress, their tails down, their hair is raised up. Like, have you found any other signs that somebody should look out for?
0: I I think that there's all sorts of signs because dogs experience this depth and breadth of emotional reactions, similar to humans. We know that dogs have a lot of emotions. I think the bigger question is how tapped in how our dog's emotional well-being is doing. A lot of people don't think about that. And I think people also assume, you know, if I don't fight in front of my dog and if, you know, I may be sad or frustrated on the inside, but I never let it show, your dog knows anyway. I think that that's what we've underestimated. Yes, of course, dogs can have physical symptoms of stress, ears back, tail down, like you said, hair up, whatever. But just because your dog doesn't physically look like he's having a stress response, doesn't mean that he isn't. And that was the piece in the research that was a little overwhelming for us, that our emotional state, regardless of if if it's externally visible to everyone or not, dogs can smell how we are doing emotionally. So one of the things that we touched on in the book is trying to work on ourselves, getting ourselves into a good place emotionally, if not for our own well-being and mental health, do it for your dog, because he's Or she is being affected anyway. And you know what's interesting is that a lot of people don't necessarily want to put, they don't put the work in for themselves. They're not, they don't, there's no self-love. They're not caring for themselves as they should. And yet we have found that when people learn that their well-being does impact their dog dramatically, they are willing to improve household stress, to improve the wellness and the health of their home and the emotions in their home for their dogs, And so it's kind of cool. We say health travels up the leash. Sometimes people are willing to make improvements in lifestyle, not for themselves, but because they love their dogs so much. And in one way, dogs can pull us to be better humans in that way.
2: I think a small hack, if you like looking at blood work, and I don't know how many people... Fancy that! But if you actually look at your dog's blood work, because you were asking, is there other ways to see stress? Typically, the vet will tell you to come in in the morning, bring your dog in on a fasted belly, and then you'll go and you'll look at your dog. Your dog's glucose numbers, and they're through the charts. I mean, they look pre-diabetic, right? That's stress right there. Cortisol, you know what I mean? Yeah. They're just dumping a whole bunch of cortisol, blowing out glycogen through the liver, and all of a sudden the glucose numbers raise. So one of the hacks that we, you know, that I'm always focusing on is when I do go in and get a wellness panel on my dog, I'm looking at some of those key things just to you know, insulin is another big thing as well, looking at your dog's insulin levels. I know in the human research, keeping insulin low means living a really long time. That's something I try to focus on with my dogs in
0: as well. A1C, A1C is a marker of glycogen and A1C is a nice kind of emerging test that some proactive wellness veterinarians are beginning to institute on a regular basis to be able to see, you know, how, how's, how's that blood sugar been doing the last couple of months and how much glycation is these, you know, how much of this cross-linking that creates degeneration early in the body, how much of that's going on. Just like humans, we want our dog's A1C to be low and steady. And that's a beautiful kind of overview of how insulin's doing, how glucose is doing, and in turn, the level of glycation happening in the body. So that's a that's a nice, easy, simple test that can be done at your veterinary to determine just how good your dog is doing on the inside.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask if you like recommended people go and, and take their, their pets in or their dogs in to get blood work done. And I think it would be really important so that way you can gauge like you know, kind of where they're at. I mean, I, I'm sure it doesn't have to be done like every month, but if you could at least get it done maybe once a year, or once every few years, you'll at least have something t- to measure against. And I guess, so along these lines of, of reducing stress, I know exercise plays an incredible role in how humans manage their stress. And I can tell that if shadow's antsy and stressed, he probably hasn't gotten enough exercise. And yeah. And so I know it's going to vary based on the size of the dog, but is there like an optimal amount of time that, that somebody should exercise their dog? And is there, does this intensity matter? Like, does it meet, like, should bigger dogs be running? Should smaller dogs be walking? Like, if you could speak to that a little bit, I think the, the audience would appreciate that.
2: Well, I'll, I'll let you jump into the rest of these, yeah. but I will jump into Just giving you a comparison model of some of the longest lived dogs. Of course, logically, exercise keeps blood sugars low. We know that in human research. It's not shocking. You keep blood sugars low. You keep insulin low. You tend to live a lot longer. So, of course, the same effect will happen with your dog. One of the challenges is, and you would probably know this as yourself talking to your other buddies, what is the optimal amount of exercise for just two different types of humans. The debate will always be, dude, I was just in the gym lifting for like 30 minutes and the other guy will turn around and be like, I was in there for like two hours. And there's so many different types of arguments as how much is enough. When we were looking at some of the longest lived dogs, Maggie, the 30 year old Kelpie from Australia, one of the things that literally when we were telling scientists the stories, their jaws were on the ground was that dog lived with a dairy farmer. And a lot of these long-lived dogs lived on farms. I mean, evidently, from all of the other benefits, just from the exercise aspect, a lot of these dogs had to walk around the farm, from one end of the farm to the other other end of the farm as these farmers drove their Tractors. tractors. The dog would follow from behind, right? The dog would be running from behind. Some of these dogs, Doug, were getting anywhere between 10 to 20 kilometers a day in exercise. So. And I, I was like, no, no, I'm not recommending everyone yeah. goes out there and gives their dog 10 to 20 kilometers, but it's so fascinating to see. I'd say to the farmers, what do you mean 10 to 20 kilometers? And they'd be like, well, it was literally five kilometers from one part of my farm to the other part, and I'd have to come back. So that's 10 kilometers. I do that in the morning, and I do that at night. And I'd say, how many days a week were you doing that? And they'd say seven days a week. It's
0: that's a ton of exercise, right? Wow.
2: A, another, but yeah. a lot of these dogs that lived yeah. a long time were free roaming on farms. They were constantly they spent moving, their lives right? walking. Not, yeah. not the average Joe who's like, dude, I got a really big backyard. I just open up my door. My dog goes <laughs> outside. Yeah. He's out there for 20 minutes. He's playing in the backyard every day. He's getting a lot of exercise. Really? That's your definition of exercise. So that's really important.
0: So, but you you are correct. A bulldog who can't breathe, or, you know, if you have a brachycephalic smash nose dog or a dog with a medical condition, those dogs can't get the same amount of exercise as a Springer Spaniel that's young and has a healthy body and no, no ligament damage. So the key is you want to identify how much exercise your dog's physical body is capable of withstanding in a pain-free fashion. But you also want to factor in, as you've mentioned, the behavioral needs. So yes, dogs have a cardio requirement. We want their heart rate elevated, you know, for a minimum of 20 minutes every day. And this is not a sniff, whiz, daughter walk. This is a heart thumping, muscles moving, really good cardio workout that is necessary for tendons, muscles, ligaments, maintaining weight, cardiovascular health. Sure. So at least 20 minutes, preferably twice a day, really, really important to have your heart rate elevated above normal. If you have a young athletic dog, the more, uh, my recommendation as a veterinarian is you you exercise your dog until he says to you, I'm good. I'd like to stop. If your dog is still pulling, saying, please more, please let's keep moving. Your dog needs to move his body. Your dog, in my opinion, needs to move until he says to you, whoo, that was good. (sighs) Let's stop. And then you're good. A tired, healthy dog is a quiet, calmer dog in your home. And you've noticed that with Shadow, that if he's antsy and wound tight, there's a very good chance he has not had the exercise that he needs. So he needs to be able to sprint and run and move his body until he says, okay, this was good. And then turn around when you get home from work at night and do it again that's a lot more exercise dogs are wired as athletes that's a whole lot more exercise than the average human really wants to put out there but in addition to physical exercise doug dogs also need mental exercise and this comes into what we call sniffaris sniffaris are not for the physical muscle building tendon ligament strengthening sniffaris are brain exercise and this is something that our lovely scientist alexander horowitz Really impressed on both. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, it's it's really fascinating because some scientists will argue that, you know, just working your dog's brain for 20 minutes is almost like what was it? Work is like working out for a few hours for a dog, you know, playing like these. You know, let's say you can't get out. Let's say, you know, you're trapped in the home. You can play these brain games where you're hiding treats around the house. You're letting their dog, you know, work out their brain, if you may, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, that in itself has a ton of benefit. But to go back to the Snafaris, one of the things that dogs don't have is choice. So, how many people will go outside to walk their dog, dogs like, "Oh my god, I, what is that incredible smell? I just want to go and smell that tree." And that person is yanking on their leash and they're <laughs> like, "Come on, Buster. We got to walk, Buster. I'm here to walk yeah. you. I know sniffing." Those poor dogs don't have choices, right? The benefits to just choice, the benefits to, to for dog for enjoyment has such exponential health benefits allowing your dog to stop smell those smell days, I feel like everybody should you know, emit those into their dog weekly walking plans at least four days a week where the dog has the opportunity to be able to stop, to be able to smell. Here's where you you have a couple problems. Sadly, I'm not going to be popular for saying this, but there's a massive obesity problem in your country and in my country, in the United States and in Canada. I mean, this is a big problem. The argument is maybe 60% of North Americans today are overweight. Guess what? so are their pets. Research will show you that typically if you have somebody in the home that doesn't love exercise or somebody that's overweight or obese, their dogs are also Mm -hmm. obese and overweight. And so this is where sometimes Dr. Karen Becker says that health traveling up the leash, this is where the benefits of having a dog will actually make you better mentally and physically.
0: Yeah. Yep. So twice a day, at least One of those cardio, one of those 20 minutes needs to be letting your dog move his body at a pace that he sets. So sometimes we have to hire dog walkers. I mean, we need to find a way to be creative to let our dogs maintain their muscle mass, cardiovascular well-being, tendon, ligament health. And then as a reward, their cool-down period gets to be... A safari where they get to stop and smell, they get to investigate their environment. They get a say in whether they go left and right. So there is really two forms of exercise. There's this physical exercise that needs to happen on a daily consistent basis, much beyond a walk. And then there's mental exercise. And that's the piece that I think a lot of people also forget is that the brain component of keeping a dog mentally engaged is a really important thing, especially as they age.
1: Yeah. No, you're, you're spot on. And, and, I, and I agree hundred percent with everything that you just said. And I think it's important that we kind of treat our dog in the sense how we would treat like, I guess, if you're raising a child or your own, your own self, if you were trying to extend your life and get healthy, and you talked about the principles of, you know, making sure they eat well, we talked about managing their stress, we talked about exercise. And obviously, like genetics, to me, is kind of self explanatory, in the sense that I know when we're talking about longevity, and we're talking about being proactive, like, I'm assuming that you can change the DNA of the dog in reverse aging, if you will, simply by doing these things that we are talking about now to to prolong their life. Am I correct? Yes, yeah. so you're
0: spot on. And that's also I think the super empowering piece. When I went to vet school 25 years ago, they were not talking about epigenetics being up and down regulated, but they are now. And Doug, that's the piece that I think is super inspiring for people. So if you have a mutt with maybe not so great genetics or if you have a purebred dog with not so great genetics, the beautiful part about being empowered by this whole brand new field of epigenetics is that we have within our control, the ability to up and down regulate our dog's DNA expression. Now, the one thing we have to insert here is that if there's DNA missing, if there's just what what is called gene deletions in veterinary medicine, if the gene is just missing, nothing is going to put that gene back in your dog's body and those dogs can have medical issues that that are going to come about but there are even then things you can do to help mitigate and slow down the degeneration when that happens the vast majority of dogs are born with these epigenetic triggers that are under our control so we spent a lot of time in the book talking about the fact that that really those decisions that ultimately allow for the expression of DNA or the suppression of DNA, they rest in our hands and they rest with the choices that we make for them because we are in full control of the decisions we make for our dogs. We want to encourage people to read this book and to choose wisely because a lot of these things, a lot of people haven't even thought about when it comes to, you know what, I didn't realize that so much was in my control. And because I haven't decided, I have unintentionally decided by my lack of choosing correctly. And what we don't want is regret. For anyone, because that's a painful thing. When you know better, you can do better, but you have to have the knowledge to be able to make good decisions. This
2: is this is probably genes are so important, Doug. Mm-hmm. When people want to go out and say, I want to go get a dog from a breeder, right? I mean, I know there's like those micro Frenchies now that are selling for. I think two chains just bought a micro French for like a hundred grand, right? This is where you have breeders. Experimenting almost like they're like with a recipe in the kitchen where they're taking a little bit of these genes and a little bit of these genes, mixing this dog, mixing that dog, trying to create like the ultimate designer brand. Holy crap! Like if you if you want to have a life mess. of yeah. heartache, yeah. you start messing around with things like that. Some of these breeders are, of course, breeding brother and sister together. They're breeding some dogs as Dr. Karen Becker alluded to, genetic deletion. If you've got a dog that's missing the gene, let's say for proper eye health. You're going to spend tens of thousands of dollars for the rest of your life bringing that dog home with eye problems. you got a dog, let's say, that's missing the gene to produce taurine properly. You're going to get a dog that's going to develop heart problems for the rest of their lives. So we've put a big section in this book that's really important. Here are the questions, man, when you want to ask your breeder if you really want to nail him down properly and find out if you're taking not a genetic disaster home go through these series because I mean the Washington Post wrote wrote about the bulldog. It is the most genetically destroyed dog of all time. Like there's no coming back from it. That dog's lifespan. Look at the bulldog. Just Google bulldog of like the 1900s and bulldog today. They don't even look the same anymore, right? People are taking the nose off of the Frenchie because it looks so cute. So you got the breeder that's just keeps trying to breed like a brother and sister together to remove the nose completely because people think they look cute. Hello, health problems. Hello, shortening of lifespan the bulldog went from living from around like 12 years. Now the average lifespan of bulldogs are around six or seven.
1: Wow. And they're becoming like more and more popular. I mean, I see like everybody's of getting could, new, a new bulldog and you're right. Yeah. I mean, you said, there's a lot to be said about like doing what we can as pet owners, as dog owners to reverse the aging and really change the DNA and the genes of the breed of the dog, I guess that we're owning because over time, you know, if we're able to change the DNA of the dog that we own and then, they let's just say they end up having offspring they have they have their they have puppies then those puppies dna will be changed and then you they can pass it, it along down i kind of want to so i kind of want to shift a little bit into something that's that's it's really common i know you guys talk about this in your book again the book is called the forever dog definitely check it out it was, it was a great read there's tons of valuable information in there on like essentially like we, what we've been talking about this whole time is is helping your dog live healthier and longer but you talked about like toys and i have shadow has enough toys that we could essentially open up a consignment shop for people if they wanted to come in and, and buy them so like how do y'all feel about pet toys and if so like if you're a for them like which ones are the most optimal for for your dog
0: so first of all you bring up a lot of great topics there in that toys are really important because it's a way to stimulate a dog's brain. It engages you to, you know, you that's playtime, something you can do with your dog. Yeah. Toys are super important, but those are these are substances that dogs are putting in their mouth all the time. Many of them are imported. They have not been tested for contaminants, heavy metals, phthalates. They've not been tested for a lot of chemicals that are building up in dogs' bloodstreams. In fact, the Environmental Working Group did some blood analysis several years ago and found that dogs actually had a whole bunch of environmental chemicals in their bloodstream at much higher concentration than kids and and adults because they mouth absolutely everything. They put everything in their mouths. And so what you give your dog to intentionally chew on is something to really think about. I'm super happy that you bring this up. Obviously, if you can pick toys that are made of natural material, so hemp or, you know, organic cotton, rubber is better than plastic. The softer the plastic, the more chemicals and plastic, BPA, BPA, phthalates that are going to be in those toys. So if you can move to toys that are made of non-toxic rubber or have been tested for third-party contaminants, that really is the very best idea because a lot of people aren't Don't recognize that dogs spend their lives mouthing phthalates Mm. that build up in their system and can create endocrine disease. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah. And I don't want to start calling out some companies, but there are, I mean, there are some horror stories online that you see some of these toys that can turn from something that's potentially safe to something incredibly toxic. Some of these toys, if left out in the sun, can activate harmful chemicals. If put in dishwashers, can activate toxic chemicals that can literally wipe out a dog so you got to be very aware because you flip around the back of these labels dog they all say not edible well i mean what are the dogs doing like chewing on it and ripping bits and pieces off of it right one of the most harmful and dangerous toys in my opinion no question hands down is the most popular toy in the world i'll classify it as a toy are those shoes those rawhide chews, chews that you yeah. see dogs chewing on that is a byproduct of leather. So, like you go into like a leather factory, they'll usually take the the hide of the cow. They'll take the top leather for fancy Gucci bags and purses. The middle layer of that leather will go to like tool belts and things that are resilient. But what do you do with that lousy bottom layer of leather that you can't use for anything? You add a whole bunch of chemicals to it. Things like titanium dioxide, formaldehyde. You blanch the life out of it to get it white. You twist it into this beautiful shape, you buy glue, and you glue it together, and you put it on the market as a non-edible rawhide chew for dogs. Man, the reports on those things, there was a report that came out that was saying that some dogs will block on some of these toys. There's like a one in four chance that if your dog blocks on rawhide, it's fatal. It gets into the stomach. It expands in the stomach juices and literally can wipe your dog out. And meanwhile, everyone's like, oh, man, I like I see these everywhere on the shelves. I didn't think they were that big of a deal. Why would they sell them if my dog can't eat them? Well, flip around the back. It says non-edible, yeah. and your dog just swallowed it.
0: But it's interesting because then people move from rawhides, which are kind of those traditional chews that everyone has been feeding since the, since the 20s. Everyone gives their dog a bone, right, a rawhide chew. So when research came out that rawhides are probably the most toxic thing you could be offering your dog, what did people switch to? They switched to chews that are for resilient chewers, which are basically chicken-flavored plastic. So then the next level of chews in the 80s and 90s were these plastic, they're still incredibly popular. They're hard plasticized bones that have... Flavors added. So now you're giving your dog hard chicken flavored plastic. Well, how good is it that your dog is chewing plastic all the time, right? So you kind of swap one toxicity yeah, for teasing, another. Yeah, you're teasing yeah, yeah. the
2: dog. Here's plastic yeah. that tastes like chicken.
0: But but don't eat it. I mean, don't, swallow, don't swallow it because you block and go to surgery. So there's a lot of issues. Our favorite natural thing for dogs to chew on are, are raw bones. They're called knuckle bones. They're massive. You, dogs are not meant to chew them, swallow them. They just hold them and gnaw on them. They're side effect free. You they have to find them in the freezer section because they get gross. They're kind of messy. You want to do it outside. There's a bunch of rules to giving raw bones to dogs. A bunch of rules. We talk about that in the book, but they're cheap. They're easy. They keep your dog's teeth amazing.
2: 91% according to research yeah. veterinary study, you show you want to keep your dogs clean. The number one reason people go into the vet to see their vetted
0: teeth rotten, through par-
2: the stinky 91% efficacy teeth cleaning if you pick the right type of bone to give it to your dog. And then here you go. You don't have to worry about all those phthalates and artificial flavors. Of course, choosing the right type of bone is another conversation, but yeah.
1: So so the bone knuckle bones you're saying are the best. Okay, cool. I will make sure. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And I've definitely given shadow the bone knuckle bones before, and I've stayed away from rawhides. I've honestly stayed away from a lot of these traditionally marketed Treats, just because I know I know how the industry works. I know the food industry. I mean, I'm a trainer and have a have a background in a lot of the health and fitness space, so I know like what goes into a lot of this stuff. And I, I think you know to kind of wrap our conversation, I really want to you know dive in a little bit more into this the topic of bones and treats because that's something I think that's really common too. And we know that treats can be obviously very good for for reinforcement for dogs, but there's certain ones that I'm sure are better than others. So if you could just provide some insight. Uh, On treats and like what you recommend as far as like what to look for in ingredients. Should they be more whole food based, like their food, or or how do y'all feel about that?
0: Let me just start out by saying if you're feeding an all ultra processed diet, if you're going to feed a highly refined diet, you know, for your dog's whole life, try and do fresh treats because that's a good way to get those polyphenols, bioactive molecules, antioxidants, all of those important things that are not found in your kibble are found in fresh food. So if you're going to do a all processed diet, try and do an unprocessed treat regime. And that's everything from your fridge. I would say avoid corn and potatoes. They're super high in starch and no onions for dogs, obviously. So no leeks or chives or any type of onion, but everything from your fridge is fair game as treats. And so that is really, really great when it comes to also providing nutrients those are treats with benefits, really good health benefits that your dogs are not getting from their food. If you're going to purchase treats, and Ronnie can speak more to that, I would say single-ingredient protein treats sourced in the U.S., or at least you're aware of the country of origin, and it has a very short ingredient panel that you can pronounce all everything on it. So if you know what it is, it has a couple of ingredients, it's sourced and made in the U.S., or a country that you trust and you know your farmer, fantastic.
2: So one of the big things, Doug, and we put this in the book, are some ingredients that you want to look for, of course, when purchasing your treats. Some of the most popular treats in the United States of America America. carry ingredients that are not only harmful in the pet space, but that are known carcinogens here in, in Canada and in Europe, banned, banned ingredients that you absolutely cannot put in some of these treatments. One that just comes to light is titanium dioxide. So for your listeners that are listening to this, the EWG, the Environmental Working Group, just posted that, you know, consuming titanium dioxide, which is used in paint, to whiten paint, it can mutate your genes. I mean, there, it's a known carcinogen, yet it is like the one of the most popular additives and treats to try to get to whiten it because if you even just look at pet food in general it doesn't look so awesome when it comes out of the pet food machine it's kind of nasty it's like gray it's like no one's going to eat this right and they got to sell it to you so how do i sell it to doug okay i'll use red dye number 40 let's say which some argue is a known carcinogen right i can color the food to make you let you believe that you're feeding your dog something incredible because when you open up the treats or even a bag of food you've got green that's supposed to simulate vegetables. You've got red that's supposed to simulate meat. You've got orange that's supposed to simulate maybe a carrot or a sweet potato. Those colors are those, they transfer right into the treat section. So some of these treats, just additives alone, are alarmingly bad for your dog. But then meat sourcing, as Dr. Karen Becker alluded to, you know those chicken jerky strips? That's what started my career. Yeah. You can find them at like Trader Joe's, you can find them all over the place. You buy those chicken jerky strips from the wrong source, right now research shows that there's a syndrome called foconi like syndrome that will mutate your dog's kidneys. It's happened to like thousands, if not tens of thousands of dogs around the world, just because some of these meats that are being sourced, I know China right now, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but the sourcing from the meats from China right now is very sketch. And there's a lot of problems with those like chicken jerky treats, those duck jerky treats, you're going to be very careful where you're sourcing that from because we're now seeing like damage done to dogs just because of treats. So that's a long-winded answer for just a small question about good treats. That's why when Dr. Karen Becker says blueberries, for instance, how much anti-aging research is out there showing talking about the polyphenols that just that just happened in blueberries, aside from all of the other benefits, these are things that you could feed your dog that could help increase their lifespan. Eggs, for instance, the number one source of protein in the world for a dog bioavailable source of protein, chopping up some eggs or putting them in a dehydrator, taking blueberries, putting them in the freezer and freezing them up. Cheese good clean cheese. I'm not talking about like spray cheese and those cheeses that you shouldn't be putting in your own body. But like a good, clean source, you go to your farmer's market, and you bite up some cheese and you cut that up. Now you're talking next level foods, carrots and so on and, and so forth. And
0: when you're at the farmer's market, you can get some chicken breasts. You can totally chop chicken breasts. You can make your own chicken trickery at home, put it in the oven. Or you can just, you know, you can gently poach some chicken breasts and use cubed meats. You can use your own meats cubed up as the best training treats in the world. So you don't have to buy fancy treats for your dog. Your dog will more than happily eat whatever meat you have in the house, gently poached or steamed, or you can totally do it raw. You can slice. It up. You can put them in the dehydrator, freeze dryer, put them in the oven, get them crispy, really, really small. Your dog will go crazy over that. So it's not even about buying good treats. You can totally make your own treats at home, and then you know exactly where you sourced it from. You might be able to make a relationship with a local farmer, and you know exactly the quality that you're giving. I think that that's what's most important. When you buy food or treats, you need to know what you're feeding and where it came from.
2: Hmm. What about greenies?
0: I think that there are better chew toys to remove plaque and tartar than greenies.
2: Well, even, I mean, so here's the deal. I I would just tell you to flip around the back of the bag and read the back of the bag, right? Google, get down to the bottom to the nitty gritty, forget the top for a moment, come down. I mean, the top is very important, but come down to the bottom for a second and start Googling some of those additives and seeing if they're even legal in the human space. The problem with the human space and the dog space is this. So you can come out in the human space and say, the FDA can come out and say, hey, look, this just isn't good for humans, right? The problem is that dogs fall into like animal livestock. So only in the animal world is it called cat food and dog food. Look at horse. It's called horse feed. Look at chicken. It's called chicken feed, right? Only the dog and cat, they label it as food because, of course, we bring them into our homes. And if you call it dog feed, nobody wants to buy it. So they call it foods. So to go back to the products that you mentioned, man, I've made some viral videos on my post about some pretty scary things that you can do with some of those treats. I mean, some of them can be like erasers. So you got propylene glycol, which we know that's not great in the human world. They, they, to make these treats like spongy, you literally can use it as an eraser. You could just write with a pencil and you can erase with it. And I've made some recommendations for dog treats, things in and around the is to prevent ants from coming into your house. I mean, there's some pretty scary ingredients in those treats. Again, because there's no regulations as to what can go in them. Man, Learn about those because those will also help you in your own food in the human space. Maybe what potentially you should be avoiding.
0: Yeah. So awesome. this whole feed versus food, if it's not labeled human grade, you have to assume it is feed grade, which means almost everything you're putting in your dog's mouth has not been not been approved whatsoever for human consumption. If you stop and really think about that, you're like, mm, I don't, I don't know how good I feel about that. Most people are not aware of that.
2: Right. And the colors, like, ask about the colors for the love of... Listen, they put a lot, of, Doug, a lot of scent enhancers in food too to get your dog to love those treats. Like, why does your dog love those treats? Read the ingredients, go try to make it. Without those added, just tell me if your dog eats it. Because a lot of these ingredients are just like runoffs of let's say like rice and potato, which most dogs will be like, I'm not gonna eat for a million dollars. But in the pet food industry, they use two enhancers.
0: A lot more than two.
2: Well, a lot more than two, but two popular ones, right? Cadaverin and putrescine. Both of these chemicals in chem labs... It's supposed to smell like a dead animal, so like a fresh kill, where your animals like, "I'm going to eat that," right? Well, without those chemicals, your dog would never touch those treats that you're seeing on the market. And those colors, how on earth can you get those beautiful colors? You got to start asking yourself when you read those dyes on the back. But is it, that really a But it idea? just falls
0: under natural flavor. Or, you know, the problem is all of these extra additives are not always clearly labeled on the package. If they're added prior to the manufacturer getting the raw material, it's not on the label. So our take-home message is feed foods that you can identify as food. You you can see what they are. You know what they are. You can pronounce all the ingredients. And the the ingredient list is as short as possible. Those are some pretty good take-home tips.
1: I think that's a perfect place for us to, to end our conversation because I mean, essentially like that's what you've been talking about this whole time is like really focusing on the quality when it comes to food, making sure your dogs get optimal exercise or managing their stress. And you're doing your own research and your own due diligence to take care of your own health. And also you know doing what you can to educate yourself and take care of your dog's health. So Karen and Rodney, this has been awesome. I highly encourage people to go check out their book, the forever dog. So with that said, like other than, you know, people buying your book when it comes out, is there any other place that people can go to check out more information about y'all?
2: Well, we were really heavily active on our Facebook pages. So Dr. Karen Becker and my Facebook page, Planet we've got a whole bunch of like videos and series and lives and all that good stuff there.
1: Awesome. I'll make sure to include everything in the show notes, and I once again thank you all for coming on. And for those listening, this is going to be one of those episodes that you kind of pause because there was a lot of information that was talked about here with uh, regards to how to really take care of your dog so that it can live longer and healthier. So what I'd like you to do, which I try to encourage with every episode, is to take a screenshot and, and share a takeaway and, and tag Rodney, tag Karen, tag myself with whatever like, really hit home with you and what you're going to apply into your life to to help become a better dog owner, because at the end of the day, we're all trying to work on that, including myself. And I mean, once again, thank you uh, for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time.